title is God is the Lawgiver. Like we heard this morning, uh, it's not so much what God is, it's who God is. And through this book, we're studying, trying to find out who God is. This God we worship, this God that reaches out to us, this God that saves us. Who is this God? Well, a facet of that that we've been building up to through other chapters is God the lawgiver. And you may think uh, or you may hear somebody say, well, I'm fine without any laws. No, you're not fine without any laws. Uh, God is a God of order, is he not? These laws establish and maintain order, even in society. Even our laws. You go to any uh, legal establishment and read the laws, learn about the laws. They're based on, it might be way distant, but they're based on the laws that God has already given. All, anything good that we have has come down from God, even our laws. This chapter says, God is the lawgiver. Uh, it's not so much I don't want to convince you that God is the lawgiver but his qualifications what does scripture say about God as lawgiver the scripture is our uh, our foundation it is our basis of belief it is where we get all of our information your sweet old sainted mamma no matter what she thinks or she told you, if it conflicts with Scripture, she's wrong. The Scripture will not fail. The Scripture will not be in error. People are. The Scripture is not. So, this is, it does have a lot of notes, and uh, I guess I need more help than most, and sometimes it seems like I'm reading a lot, but I don't think there's any way around it. So what I'm going to do is try to cover the, the scripture uh, listed especially. I will read some. It probably will seem like a lot. Uh, like I said, I'll start in the top paragraph there. This has built up to this point in the book. Having considered God as Lord, we will now consider his place over creation as lawgiver and judge. Judge is next week. The scriptures teach us that God is a holy, righteous, and loving sovereign who cares for the well-being of his creation. It says that he, it is right that such a sovereign should rule over his creation and administer justice, rewarding the good that is done and punishing the evil. According to the scriptures, God has revealed his will to all men and will judge men according to the standard that has been revealed to them. God sets the standard. He judges according to the standard. He will not go outside that because he's perfect. It is complete. It is it is all we need. It is all he is all he looks to. I'm going to skip on down. The scriptures teach us that as the creator and sovereign of the universe, it is also his supreme lawgiver and judge. He is our lawgiver and judge. Now, this is one of the qualifications. Uh, men, you may say, you may be talking to your friend, and you say, well, at my house, we do this at my house. This is the way we run my house. And uh, your friend will say, well, we don't do that. At your house, you are the man. You are the sovereign. 
in all of creation, God is the sovereign. He created everything. It is His. He has the right. He is absolutely qualified to say what is right and what is wrong. He is both holy and righteousness and, and righteous. The holiness of God refers to his separation from all that is common, profane, and sinful. The righteousness of God refers to the rightness and fairness of all his works and judgments. By knowing this about God, we can say that his, his laws, his statutes, what he has decreed, will always, it will not fail. You won't say, you won't look back at a time and say, well, God, God decreed this or God said that and it didn't work. No, it, it always has and it always will, even into eternity that we can't imagine. Speaking of which, moving on down in that note, on the day of his judgment, we looked at this in our confession, talking about the time of judgment. On the day of his judgment, all men can be assured that God will judge them with perfect justice. Even the condemned will bow their heads and declare that the judge of all the earth has judged them righteously, righteously according to his law. Okay, we're hurrying along. We're going to look at uh, Scripture Isaiah 33, if you don't mind turn there. We'll look at what these three, uh, three titles say about God. The first one is judge. Thirty-three, verse twenty-two. This is a time when uh, the prophet is speaking about a time in the future. Uh, they're being oppressed. There's nations that God is going to use to punish Israel, and the prophet states, "For the Lord is our judge." The Lord, and notice the capital there, this means sovereign God of the universe, Yahweh, Elohim. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. So we see as judge, God alone, like I mentioned before, is perfectly suited and qualified. Only He has the understanding of absolute, perfect consistency in obedience to a holy standard. We don't have that knowledge. We, we say, well, this is how I messed up today. This is how somebody done me wrong. We have all kinds of references, all kinds of stories about things that are wrong. Only God has a history, all of history, for doing everything perfect. He is qualified. He alone knows men's hearts and intents. He alone has the power to carry out an eternal sentence, whether eternal life or eternal damnation. We see that listed as judge. What about the lawgiver? It states in that same verse, he is the lawgiver. And we have association, we know about laws. If you've ever got a speeding ticket, you know about the law. Men make laws that are self-serving, do they not? Men do that. We know that because of oppressive governments. Since man is sinful, this only results in harm. On down the road, you say, this man, whatever politician, whatever lawmaker a man is, his selfish law will not turn out good. It is for his benefit, temporal, 
temporary. It's selfish. Only God's law can be beneficial in a godly way. God is holy. He makes laws that do bring Him glory, but also that ultimately benefit His subjects, which are us, man. Ultimately, whatever benefits God benefits His creation. Again, only God is qualified in this area to hold this standard. He's the only one that knows what perfect is, actually. We don't. So, yeah, He is qualified. What about as king? The same verse says, he, God is our king. He will save us. This is, I think, part of the reason that uh, the people, so many people, when Jesus was prophesied to come and Jesus finally did come, they were being oppressed by the Roman government and they said, oh, this, this Messiah, this king will come and save us. They had a misunderstanding. It's, it's not to save them from the bad government. It's to save them from their sins. But it says he is king. God is creator, sustainer, and owner of all that exists. I mentioned this before. It is his. For him to be conquered as a king or dethroned is impossible. He literally reigns by default. There is no king in his category. There is no class of uh, competition which could enter with God. He, he, is, he reigns by default. In human thinking, a king, this is what we see from history, a king is either born into the office or he conquers the kingdom and becomes a king or the kingdom is handed down to him. Only God fulfills any and all requirements to reign perfectly and eternally. He, because he is self-sustaining, he is eternal, he, the kingdom was not given to him, he created everything. So he alone is qualified in that way as king. Uh, let's look at the next scripture. It says it is James 4.12. The reason why these are so important Is because Scripture is our foundation. Scripture is the way we deal with our spiritual matters. James 4.12 says of God, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Here we see because of God's perfect, sovereign power and authority, He can save, He can pardon, or He can destroy, He can condemn. We cannot talk, I don't think, about these attributes of God without... We, we constantly have to come back and overlap and, and see that as lawgiver, as sovereign, uh, it, any of these attributes has to do... They all flow from His holiness... And then we think of his sovereignty. There can be no other to rule above him if he is sovereign, and he is sovereign. So all these things, uh, they pour out of who God is. This is how we understand. This is how, we, how God deals with us. 
And we can take great comfort in that, knowing that He won't make a mistake. He won't judge us unjustly. He won't be inconsistent. As a matter of fact, if there was any way you could even think He was inconsistent, it would be in His mercy and grace. When we, des when we deserve bad, He often gives us good. <clears throat> the note in the book says, This text not only affirms that God is both lawgiver and judge, but it also communicates the seriousness of the matter. And again, he talks about the final judgment. That day will determine the eternal destiny of all men. It is not to be taken lightly. On that final judgment day, there will be only two possible verdicts. Eternal salvation in heaven or eternal death and destruction in hell. If we take the laws and judgment of men with a high degree of seriousness, how much more should we be concerned for the law and judgments of God? Jesus gave us the following warning. This comes from Matthew. Do not fear those who, who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Knowing there's only two uh, destinations at the end of our life, there's, either, there's no avoiding heaven or hell. He alone has the uh, authority to carry out this judgment. The next heading on page 217, the heading says the foundation of God's law. And men will argue about morality and people will pass laws trying to legislate morality. But it says here that God has declared some things to be right and others wrong. Is God's law nothing more than an arbitrary set of rules? No. Is there a reason behind, behind all these commands and prohibitions? And he asks the question, what is the true essence or heart of the law? Then he gives some, he lists some headings here, four headings. The first one says, God is the self-existent creator, sustainer, and Lord of all. It says in that line, it is right for God to rule over and judge. What right, what uh, word do we see there that we work off of? Right. This is God's righteousness. It is right for him to do that. Number two, it says God is the only basis for morality. I just mentioned that. We don't have a, a reference. We don't have a way to say, I know what's right and wrong because mom and dad taught me what's right and wrong. Well, they, they probably did teach you some good stuff. Not perfectly. Only God can show us in his law what is perfect. What is in his character is perfect. God is the only basis for morality. Apart from God, there can be no laws, no right or wrong, and no standard of good or evil. That is a profound statement. If we did not know or if we had no reference about who God is or what God is, it would be, you would be certainly hopeless. You wouldn't know, am I, am I displeasing God? Am I breaking God's law or not? You would not know. You would go on what people, your own experience, and your own experience will fail you. Number three says God's laws are an expression of who he is. Like I referred to a while ago, like we heard this morning. These laws, all of the things he gives us, he passes these directions, he gives to us these statutes and standards they are an expression of who he is. Uh, 
in the New Testament, we see the argument about is, is the law bad because uh, we can't keep it. No, that's not the law's fault that we can't keep it. Uh, it flows from His holiness and His goodness. Only good comes from God. It is an expression of who He is. God's laws are not arbitrary rules that He is capriciously, just willy-nilly, we would say, just because just He likes it. Well, it is because He likes it, but He's always right. Uh, they are a reflection of His character, His holiness, and His righteousness. The essence of God's law is to love Him supremely and to love others as ourselves. Jesus stated this, How will men know that you are my disciples? Because you love one another. Now, when we think about the gap, the difference, the extreme, God is so perfect and holy and righteous. Man is so rebellious and sinful. He cannot, he cannot come up with a good thought on his own. So, the expression of, of that is to love one another. The essence of God's law is if we, we come out with what God has already said. We take what God gives us and we love others. Uh, and we do that because he has already loves us. This is clearly taught by Jesus to be the heart and ultimate end to which all divine law is directed. And in the note it says Mark 12, 29-31. The knowledge that we should love God supremely and others as ourselves is written on the heart of every man. And its full implications, like what such love involves, are spelled out in clear and specific terms in the scriptures, which, for example not worshiping idols, not stealing, and not murdering. We're going to get to uh, that in a minute, the, the morality of God's law and uh, how we know these things. Uh, there, there is a knowledge of good and evil, a, a degree, not all of it. There is a degree of it built into us because we're made in God's image. We, we couldn't make the laws that God has made because God's perfect. Uh, but, we can see, well, I'll not get into it too, ahead of time, but we know what's right and wrong in a small way. The next heading says the law is revealed in the scriptures. This is why the scriptures are so important, and that's why it's important that we turn to the scriptures. The law of God is made known to men through the scriptures. Uh, in the pages of the Bible, we learn that men ought to love God supremely, their fellow man's their cells. And in the Bible are the full implications of such love and spelled out in clear and specific terms. Not worshiping idols. I already read that. This written revelation of the law is unfolded with greater and greater clarity throughout the Bible, beginning in the book of Genesis and reaching its culmination in the New Testament. From Genesis to Revelation, God's will is both revealed and illustrated. Now, this is how we look and we say... We're breaking God's law. Somebody else is breaking God's law. Not everybody looks in the scripture, but it is our, it is our standard. And this is how we can know. For this reason, the apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So, again, scripture is the standard. It talks about... Uh, the early 
the early days of man's knowledge of God. <clears throat> and it says, although God's revelation of His law in the Scriptures includes every portion of the Bible, even books like Ruth that, that don't mention God as much, or Esther, that you know, the name of God is not put forth and the gospel is not put forth as clearly. It's still there. The law still remains. God's character is still revealed. <clears throat> God's will for human conduct was made known with special power and clarity on two occasions in biblical history. And these are going to be familiar to you. At the giving of the Old Covenant to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai, we find that in Exodus chapter 20. And number two, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, God's ultimate and final word to mankind. These uh, two times, they don't, they don't clash, that one don't con contradict the other. In the Old Testament, the giving of the law pointed towards Christ and His perfect uh, life, His perfect sacrifice. All of God's laws are exhibited and fulfilled in the man Jesus. Okay, here we get to the, uh, the part that we don't usually hear about. The law revealed in the heart. And I mentioned earlier that, and Paul has told us many times from this pulpit, how men know. You can go to a, a foreign country and a man will know, I don't want my neighbor to kill me. And it's not right for me to kill my neighbor. That is fairly obvious. About that, the book says, We have learned that God is the great lawgiver who will judge every man according to his law. But this truth brings to mind a question. How can God judge every man according to His law? This right here. When a great multitude of humanity has never had the privilege of knowing the Scriptures that contain this law. This is a question that many unbelievers will bring to you. And it's a question that you know, kind of bothered me. According to the Scriptures... God has revealed His unchanging moral standard, like I just spoke about, to mankind in two distinct ways. He has revealed His will in great detail to some men, I'm reading right from the book, through the written commands of Scripture. So that's, that's very clear, black ink on white paper. And He has revealed His will to all men in a general way, through the law that He has written on our hearts, just like I told you a minute ago. We know we don't want to be stole from. We don't want to be killed. We don't want wrong done to us. Very obvious. Uh, in both cases, the revelation of God's law is sufficient that all men, without exception, will be without excuse on the day of judgment. Now that's scary. But that's that's God's way, and it's perfect. It will work. It will bear out to His glory and to our benefit. Uh, that's, just, that's just the way it is. Those who, have, those who have had the privilege of possessing the Scriptures will be judged according to the Scriptures. And those who have only had the influence of the law written upon their hearts, like the, the moral, and I'm talking just basic. This is just a small, small fraction of morality written upon their hearts, will be judged according to that revelation of the law. Uh, each man will be judged according to the light he has received. Uh, let's turn to this scripture. Uh, this is almost all of it, but not all of it. Luke chapter 12. And read this as part of a parable. 
Jesus was teaching his, his uh, disciples, and this kind of came after that. It says, chapter 12, uh, it says verse 47. I think I want to start before that. I will. I'll start in verse 41. Peter asked the question about the parable. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? He was talking about the parable of the, the master that set his house under the care of a servant and went away. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him, in the, put him with the unfaithful. And that servant, who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was, was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So we see that this is proportionate. All men are born lost, but... All men have a degree of morality in their heart. They cannot keep God's law. But the one that, like us, that know God's law and have a better understanding, the one who, especially the ones who Christ lives in your heart, the Holy Spirit bears witness to His Word. Uh, it's like you say, you can't say I didn't know. That's exactly what it is. Uh, everybody is liable. But we are more liable. We carry a greater responsibility. Remember that. That's a great, great responsibility. Uh, how you act and how, how you, uh, what you put forth to your lost friends and family, your co-workers uh, out in the world. It's not just if you got, if we had bumper stickers, we don't have bumper stickers. If you, somebody so you know, that knows you go to Covenant Bible Church, it's not just making the church look bad. It's, it's making God look bad. Uh, it's a serious thing. The next page states that because God is the supreme lawgiver who will judge all men according to his law, we are forced to deal with a difficult question. How can God judge every man according to his law when a great... Oh, I already read that and I, read, that's, I need to read this scripture here. When a great multitude of humanity has never had the privilege of knowing the scriptures that contain his law... Uh, the answer to this problem is set before us with great clarity. So, again, not just Luke there, but we need to turn to Romans 2.12. This is a deeper, uh, probably a more detailed explanation of what we're talking about. Romans gets pretty, uh, pretty specific. Yeah, this is. This is, uh, this is a good bit more specific. This says... Uh, the point that he's making here, all mankind can be divided into two dis distinct groups. Uh, so to answer the question, how can...
can God judge every man according to his law when so many have not had the privilege of knowing the scriptures? The answer is here. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. We see here that, and it asks the question, I mean, it asks the question, according to Romans 12, all mankind can be divided into two groups. And it, asks, and it goes on to say, those who have sinned without the law refers specifically to Gentiles or pagans outside of Israel. We know that now the church, the, the uh, Israel pictured the church though, so now we're in the church. Outside of Israel, who had no knowledge of the old covenant law of God as revealed in the Pentateuch, five first books that Moses wrote. In the wider context, it refers to all those throughout history who have died, lived and died, without the privilege of knowing the details of the law God revealed through the written commands of the scriptures. So there are, there are these people who don't know. There are people who have no exposure. In that day, they were referred to as Gentiles, pagans. Uh, this is us before we got saved. Uh, number two says, those who have sinned under the law, just because we're saved, don't mean we quit, we quit sinning. We should. We should work that way, but we still sin. Those believers in the Old Testament that believed forward to Christ, believing, looking forward, like we look backward, they look forward, they still sin. <clears throat> Number two says, those who have sinned under the law refers specifically to the nation of Israel who had been entrusted with the Old Covenant law of God revealed through Moses. In a wider context, it refers to all those throughout history who have been privileged to know the law of God as revealed in detail through the com written commands of the scriptures. There's a wide group, there's a narrow group. And it asks another question. According to Romans 2.12, what are the consequences for sin? What is the consequences for breaking God's law? That's an easy question. I imagine most of the uh, kids in here could answer that from their catechism. What are the consequences? It is condemnation. What will happen to these people? They will perish. They will be judged. And that's, that's sobering when we think about that. And we know people that we love or care about who reject God's law. And, you know, maybe they're my age or older and you think, these people don't have much time. How can I get them to turn? If they don't turn, if they don't repent, if they die without the knowledge of Christ without the Holy Spirit working in their life, they won't, they have no hope of heaven. They will perish. They will be judged. There's only this side and this side. Salvation and condemnation. Both groups will be judged by the law that they have received. Whether, it's only, whether it only be the law of God written on the heart, the moral that we talked about, or that in addition to the law of God revealed through the Scripture. We'll see here how God maintains His righteousness at the bottom of page 219. The book states, It is understandable how God can rightly condemn those who have known the written code of His law and still rebelled against it. But how can He justly condemn those who have lived and died without ever having access to the Scriptures? In the following text, two, 
Two reasons are set forth that prove that God is right in judging all men, even those without the Scriptures. And this is how God maintains His righteousness. Let's look again in Romans <clears throat> chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 18 and 20. Well, I think we've got several here in Romans. If you want to keep your finger there. So the question is, the statement is made. God has made himself evident to all men through creation. What does Romans, the scripture, teach us about this truth? Okay, here is the scripture. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is restating and overlapping what I talked about a while ago, uh, the fact that men have a degree of morality. Uh, part of that comes from creation. I, I mentioned our experience and how we feel about being wrong and how people, we know that we don't want to be wrong. Okay, that shows us a degree of right and wrong. It don't show us all of God's will and it don't show us God's holiness, but it, it kind of cracks the door open. So what does this show us about this truth? It shows us that God's eternal power and divine nature are revealed in creation. And God's providence towards creation, especially with man. This is all of grace. God deals with all of creation through grace. Through his benevolent, patient, provident love reaching out to all of creation. Uh, you, you think uh, the earth, the physical earth. Yes, he does deal with grace on the earth. He deals with grace through men, particularly in a salvific way, in a saving way, not just in a, a patience way, not just in a mercy way. It's in a way that he reaches out and takes action and saves men. Uh, it says in that, in that passage we read that the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness. Now how do, we, how do we avoid that? We're born in un ungodliness. All we have, like I mentioned, we don't have a, an experience, a reference of righteousness because we're born lost. We accept the righteousness of Christ. We call out to Christ. He is all righteousness. There is nothing ever bad, sinful, wrong, forgetful, made a mistake, a uh-oh, in Jesus. Not a bit. That's how we, we avoid God's wrath. The wrath was poured out on Him, not us. God deals with us in grace. I do want to read this note here. It will help clarify this. This does not mean that all men know everything that may be known about God or that all men are granted the same degree of revelation. 
it does mean that all men in every place and at all times possess sufficient knowledge of the true and living God to be without excuse for their sins on the day of judgment. Although limited, God's revelation of himself to all men has not been ambiguous or clear. It's not like you could say, I don't know if that's what God's talking about or not. No, it is clear. He has made it plain, just like the scripture says, to all men that there is one true God and that he alone should be worshipped. The universe, all of creation, all that we see, you kick over a rock, you cut a tree down, a beautiful waterfall, a bird in the sky, all of creation that God has made proves his existence and simply acts as a confirmation of what men already know. There is one true God. This, this harkens back to the significance of God as creator. This is the connection right here. If he is creator, then he is worthy. He has, he has that authority. You have sovereignty, you have authority. It all comes together and qualifies God as law giver. <clears throat> there is one true God, and he is worthy of worship and obedience. There is only one. Only one qualified. Uh, men want choices. That would confuse us. And there can be none as good as God. It, it, is, it is for us. It is good that God made himself that, not made himself that way, but that, that God is that way. There's only one God. And he is perfect and he is righteous. The next uh, statement says, God has placed his law in the hearts of men. Uh, Let's look at this scripture. It is in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> Here he's still talking about, Paul is still talking about the difference in the Gentiles and uh, the Jews. The Jews thought themselves privileged or special, which to a degree they were, but that did not make them saved. Uh, Let's read this scripture, 14 and 15. And this is uh, Paul addressing their qualifications. Paul says, For when Gentiles, those who are apart from the law, those who are outside, those who do not have, do not accept the Old Testament. When Gentiles do, who do not have the law, by nature, that means they know, like we've been talking about, they, got, they know what's, what's right and wrong. They do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. You ever wonder where we got that phrase? I'm amazed at how many phrases we get from Scripture and we don't, ever, we, we don't realize it. They are a law to themselves. That's what he says. They are a law to themselves because they know. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while the conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He's pointing out, and this I'm restating what I've already said about people. Uh, there is a degree. There's no salvation in that tiny degree of morality. Just because we know that we don't want to get beat up or we don't want somebody to kill, somebody to kill us. There's no, there's no gospel in that. But, it does show that God 
has made laws and that part of that law, part of that knowledge is already in our head. Some people do what's right. They never do it perfectly without questioning it like we've been describing. Men, even fallen men, are created in God's image. Our morals will, at the very least, point us away from harming others, like I've been talking about. The bottom line, a sane, rational person can tell when they're sinning on the most basic level. They may choose to ignore their conscience, but the, this reality is there. Nonetheless, their conscience. God has given us a conscience to work, to, uh, it's a bad way to say, help out the Holy Spirit, but that might be a good way for you to understand it. Our conscience works, and it convicts us. Uh, seldom will your conscience uh, uh, give you pride or anything like that, but your conscience will convict you, and your con conscience will say, no, you know better than that. Stop that. It's a gift from God. Again, grace. He gives us a conscience. And you say, can you explain the conscience? Nope, I sure can't. I struggle to uh, put these facts together in my head, but I'm still going to... I'm still going to read what the book says. <clears throat> okay. We're almost at the end. This last note says, This does not mean that there were those among the Gentiles who obeyed God's law perfectly. Remember I said it was only a tiny amount. So as to be righteous before Him. Remember I said there's no, sav no saving gospel in that. It means... That even in pagan cultures, there were morals and standards. They're still there. They still are today. Morals and standards that agreed with God's law. And an example given here says a high regard for telling the truth. We admire somebody that's honest, don't we? Yeah. Duty to honor one's parents. We like that, don't we? When we see that in a person, or especially a young person. Prohibitions against murder. The one I keep mentioning. This stands as undeniable proof that God has written, imprinted or engraved, the essence of His law, love to God and love to one's fellow men, on the heart of every man. It's small. You, you think you know somebody that's a mean man or a mean person. Well, way down in there, he knows he don't want to get murdered. And he knows it's wrong for him to murder somebody else. It, it's in there. It's, it's in there. Though multitudes are without the written code of the law revealed through the scriptures, God has written his law on their very hearts and minds. This law is sufficient to guide men in the right way, not to save them. It's to point them to God. It's to open their minds to the gospel, to guide men in the right way, despite not being as specific as the law written of scripture, the, the, the written law of scripture. Therefore, all men will be held accountable. Even this small amount, that tiny bit of morals in their mind, is enough to make them be accountable on the day of judgment. In verse 15 that we read, Paul mentions the conscience, which refers to a moral sense of right and wrong, what we've been talking about all along. There's God's law that's written, it's clear, it's plain, it's historic, it's, there's no questioning, questioning it, and there's man's 
conscience, his morals. They're within every man, which defends him when he obeys God's law and accuses him in every act of disobedience to God. It is possible for the conscience to be rejected. We see that in 1 Timothy 1.19. To the point that it no longer functions. What does he call this? He calls this searing the conscience. Uh, you keep on doing wrong so long, you just don't feel wrong anymore. That is another sobering, sobering thing. To think that you can do that. Uh, to think that I could do that or... Uh, it's, that it's even possible. Why would God not make us so that that's not possible? Well, God's just and right, and he gave us a conscience for a reason, and it's not to be abused, it's not to be neglected. <clears throat> to the point is no longer functions. It functions as a moral compass. Paul refers to this frightful state as being turned over to the dishonorable passions of one's own corrupt heart like we see in Romans chapter 1, or having the conscience seared as with a, a hot iron. Now, I went over the fact and mentioned over and over our morals. God gives us laws. God gives us perfect laws. They'll never fail. He'll never forget his laws. He'll say, oh, yeah, you broke that. I, I didn't, didn't remember that. No, he's always going to remember that. He, we, will, we will be judged by the same laws that the Old Testament saints were. Laws, God's law is perfect, it's eternal. Uh, we shouldn't neglect our conscience. Uh, God works, He makes His statements of His law and His word. He supports it, he backs it up, he plunges it forward in preaching. When we read, he uses the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit says, Did you forget that? Did you forget that law? You know you're breaking that law. And the conscience says, He's right. You are breaking that law. We should not ignore our conscience uh, God is perfect he cannot make a bad law all of his law points to his holy absolute holy perfection and righteousness he is qualified and his laws are perfect let's pray